This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Whitney Bauck, COO of HelloSign. Previously, Whitney served as the Senior Vice President of Global Marketing and GM of Enterprise at Box. She's also held senior marketing roles at companies like EMC and Documentum. On this episode, Whitney talks all about how to be an innovative CMO. She also talks about how to speak the language of every member of the C-suite and how marketers can better leverage technology. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And in the city across the bay, we are quite literally across the bridge from one another right now. Uh, Whitney, how's it going? Great, Ian. Thanks for having me and happy, uh, happy afternoon to you. Yeah, indeed. We are going to talk about something today that I find particularly fascinating. Uh, we're going to talk about being an innovative CMO and how that plays into the roles of CMO, CIO, COO, and, uh, and a few of the things that you've been in and around in your career. But before we get into that, how did you get into marketing? It, not through a direct path, I can tell you that. I actually started my career as an engineer at Oracle and had subsequently a bunch of technical roles. But somewhere along the way, I think maybe about 10 years in, I landed in product management, which for anybody who doesn't know, in the software world, that is technically the job that kind of takes market requirements and turns those into requirements for engineers to build products against. So ideally, we're building something customers actually want. The role that I had at that time sort of spanned both interfacing and, and talking to and learning from customers and also talking inwardly toward product and engineering roles. And I just found myself gravitating toward the external half of that equation more and more. And that's really what grew my passion for marketing. I think I just discovered I like telling stories. Um, I like help turning on light bulbs for people. And I like learning what their priorities are and helping to problem solve with them. And those are really a lot of the essentials behind marketing. Yeah. And what's so funny is you, you started out not in marketing and then where you are now is not necessarily in marketing as COO. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about like, what is your, your role like as COO at HelloSign? So having a CMO role, a GM role, a CMO role, a GM role, that, that kind of back and forth is what led me to the position I'm in today. As COO at HelloSign, I manage marketing, sales, business development, and customer operations, along with a couple of other business functions. But those primarily constitute the entire go-to-market function, if you will, and really represent the whole life cycle of the customer from the first time they may ever hear about us, which is really from the marketing side, all the way through the sales process and then into post-sales where we really help customers adopt and be successful with our technologies. And I love having that end-to-end visibility and interaction with our customers. It's just a, it's exhilarating. It's fun. I learn something every day. It's, it's just a really fun job to have. 
You know, it's funny. So we talk a lot on this show about, uh, and it might seem self-serving, but it's rooted in it's rooted in truth that uh, the CMOs of today are going to be more suited to be CEOs than ever before. We haven't talked a ton about how CMOs are well suited to be COOs, although we have touched on it a few times. You were awarded one of the world's hundred most innovative CMOs. You know, top forty women in revenue all sorts of different things like that. Do you think that those marketing skills really position you to be a COO of the future? You know, that's a really interesting question. Yes and no. Um, I think partially it depends on how the COO role is defined in an organization. The fact that here at HelloSign, it means all of those go-to-market functions is not necessarily true everywhere. Um, I mentioned I also have some other operational elements. I also run legal finance and business intelligence. I think there are cases where a COO role is really defined truly around the operations of the business focused on scale and executing toward the vision of the company and things like that, but may or may not have responsibility for those go-to-market functions. So in this case, certainly my marketing background, but I think equally my general management background was what made me well-suited for this position. I think were it a more kind of operational only type of COO role, then I think those marketing skills are probably less relevant than some of the general management type of skills that really were focused around building and scaling a business across many functions, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes perfect sense. And because you have, you know, a lot of experience overseeing numerous areas of the business, and I'd love to get into like, you know, how you go about prioritizing that. But, you know, I think one of the things that uh, a little birdie told me before this interview was that you are the CIO whisperer. This is a direct quote. It may or may not have been Lauren Vaccarello who told me that. Um, and that you have an exceptional ability to connect with CIOs and understand their problems. And it really struck me as such an interesting insight about you because what a better way to be prepped to be a COO than to understand and work with CIOs and to have been a CMO. I feel like the intersection of those two functions being the ability to prioritize massive amounts of you know business assets and how technology plays into that is like the perfect kind of amalgam. And I feel like 20 years ago, no one would have thought that was the case. Is, am, am I off base there or am I on no, onto something? No, I don't think you are off base there. And it, it is funny that, yeah, I do have that nickname. I've been really fortunate I suppose, and not just having that marketing benefit, but frankly, having spent the bulk of my career in the CIO community, and mainly because the companies I've worked for have really served the CIO. And so that's given me so much insight, connection, and ability to build relationships with CIOs that you're correct, though. I think that insight and that connection and view of what matters to that community coupled with the technology background that I have, meaning starting my career as an engineer and really getting the depth of technology. And then the marketing is sort of the glue maybe between them. It is an interesting combination and I think has set me up very well. I don't know. I can't say I planned it that way, by the way. (laughs) Well, you know, the, the, you know, the adage of uh, it's impossible to connect the dots when you're still making the dots, right? Like the only time you can connect the dots is, is uh, once you've formed all of them, you don't know, no, don't know what path you're going to take. Do you kind of think that the way that technology has been a thread throughout your career 
is something that as a marketer has allowed you to kind of speak the same language and empathize with, you know, the CIOs that you're ultimately like marketing and selling to? No question. A hundred percent truth. And I think the fact that I personally have a fascination for technology and always have has certainly helped in that regard as well. I'm really eager to talk to IT professionals and understand what their challenges are, how they're thinking about solving the emerging business needs of today and tomorrow. How do they morph, you know, the infrastructure that helps a business scale, grow, and evolve? And those are fascinating challenges to me and make for great conversation because that's what CIOs are thinking about and talking about. And I think that's part of maybe that nickname that you heard about. Um, I think (laughs) the reason I've been able to build such good relationships with CIOs is because I genuinely am interested in what they're facing as problems, challenges, and obstacles. I love problem solving. And so talking through how the technologies that I'm familiar with and get exposure to may help some of these CIOs sort through their challenges and problems is really fruitful. And I think on both sides. And lastly, I think I'm inquisitive and curious. And so I learn a lot from those conversations. And I'm sure that CIOs that I connect with know that and feel that. And that's the basis of any great relationship, right, is mutual respect and curiosity and great conversation. And so I think those things have been why I've been able to build such a great network of relationships in the CIO community. You know, I think the, I think the title of CIO Whisper, I think is, is really funny because it implies the fact that you're, you know, speaking to a lot of the different CIOs, but I, I'd imagine that you were listening a lot more than you were speaking to them based off of the way that you can kind of empathize with, with what they're building. What were some of the best practices that you had in your career to really listen to the people that you were selling to and working with in ultimately being able to like deliver, especially in product marketing, like deliver some of those assets and those things that really like help them along their journey, their customer journey? Well, I think part of it is that you have to be genuine and authentic in the curiosity part of the conversation. I I mean, I have to really, I can't fake it. If I were to fake interest, I think it would be detected immediately, especially by a CIO. I mean, they have BS meters that are more sensitive than most. I don't know if I can swear on this program. So (laughs) (laughs) we're family friendly. Someone's listening in their car with their kids. So there you go. So their BS meters are sensitive. So I feel like if I weren't genuinely interested, curious and knowledgeable, then I'd be irrelevant and or irritating. So I think it's really important that that be the basis and of the listening part. And you're right. I definitely feel like I listen more than I talk. I think the other thing too is a bit of a mind, I guess a a mental position that I'm not really, even when I'm in a potential sales engagement, I'm not really selling per se. I'm listening and problem solving. And if in fact I'm hearing challenges and solutions to those challenges that are relevant to whatever my company happens to provide or another company I'm aware of happens to provide, then that's the value I bring to that conversation is to say, hey, I'm kind of hearing you describe this problem that I think might be solved if you did this, this, and this, or leverage that, this, and the other. That's the kind of, I don't know, I guess the conversation benefit in all this and the listening aspect that you touched on. 
did you do things like, you know, product advisory boards and, you know, things like that? Like what, what were some of those activities that you were doing to be able to like set up situations where you can listen and get feedback and talk to those folks? Yeah, there's a couple of really uh, tactical things that I've been able to do. Actually, frankly, when I was at Box, when I've been at HelloSign that are helping me even today, and I'm repeating many of them. One was, I think the first thing is first, you have to build those relationships. And that means you've got to go where they go. And so one of the first things that I did early in my career was start attending even if by sponsorship, CIO summits that are curated specifically for that audience. And clearly the agendas have been set to the topics that are of interest and relevance to them at that given you know, year or time. And just participating in those events gives you access to conversation through networking and also, frankly, listening to the sessions where CIOs are presenting and communicating what it is that's important to them, what priorities they have, what problems they're solving. And that gives me a great basis for conversation over a glass of wine or over lunch or whatever. So that, that certainly was where I started. And then as some of those relationships started to gel, and I actually made friends with many of these people, as you do with colleagues that you work with and respect, then we started to do things like bring CIOs together on topics that we felt were relevant and important to the CIO community. So then I could start hosting some of those events ourselves. And then the third thing turned into exactly what you just um, touched upon, Ian, which is a, an advisory board composed of CIOs. And so a CIO advisory board, to me, is one of the most intimate ways to interact with and get feedback from and have meaningful conversation with the people that are potentially direct influencers on company strategy, product strategy, et cetera. And so I really treated that CIO advisory board as a group of confidants where I could share anything and everything about what we were contemplating, what we were investing in, what trade-offs we were making, what we were shutting down, you know, and kind of say, does this make sense? You, you know us, you know our business now. Do, how do you see these decisions that we're contemplating? And can you give guidance to me, to us, on whether we're doing the right things? At the same time, when they're doing that, they're, they're giving that advice in context of what matters to them in their business and as a proxy for the other CIOs that they know. And so I, I always felt like that fairly intimate group of about 12 or so CIOs was really a representative group of hundreds of CIOs, but represented in a small group to let us have meaningful conversation. So those things go where the CIOs go and start to build those relationships, then start to aggregate people in a meaningful way in small groups and ultimately find the people that you feel are going to give you the best advice and, and be the most forthright in their view of the world and bring them together in an advisory board format. Those three things have been kind of game changing. Yeah. I mean, especially because a lot of the products that you're talking about are extremely technical. There's a lot that goes into that, especially when you're talking about product marketing. And especially when you're talking about products that a lot of time have the CIO visibility and are you know making the purchasing decision, but they're not the ones implementing. And it might be even you know the practitioner is the person who's two or three levels below them that you know manages the day to day, right? How did you how did you look at product marketing when you were selling things um, or in an ecosystem where you know there's so much complexity and so much like technical uh, proficiency 
around like new technologies and stuff like that? Well, it, the interesting thing is you kind of have to touch all levels. You have to know who your ultimate end user is and, and be able to have message and value for that individual. So if, you know, we talked about HelloSign for a second, I mean, HelloSign is obviously a, a tool to send things for signature, legally binding contracts, quotes, proposals, whatever. So the, the ultimate person who's using it is the person signing the thing. And so you have to have some value proposition for them, but who's the buyer? It's not that ultimate signer. It's the person who owns the documents that are being sent out for signature. And oftentimes that can be legal, but when it comes to content and document protection and security and safety, that oftentimes lives within the CIO's organization or the CISO's organization. So then you really have to have a value proposition for them. And in our case, we also offer our product and service as via an API, specifically toward integrating with other websites, applications, and processes. And so then we've really got to have tools and messaging and value for the developer that's going to work against that API. And I'm using HelloSign just as a proxy. I mean, this would be true for any technical product. I think you really have to know the decision makers, the influencers, and the users, and frankly, have the right level story messaging and content for all of them. And so for a highly technical product, that means you've got a very, very wide array of content and messages you have to provide. I mean, for the developer, for example, you'd have to have API documentation and sample code and SDKs and various things that really help a developer build effectively. But that documentation is deeply technical, very different than, say, the very technical information for the security team about how the infrastructure is and how hashing and encryption work and all the things that a security professional is going to care about to decide whether or not that product is safe for business use, whereas the end user wants none of those things. They just want to know what's the experience like, how easy it is for me to get my job done, and how quickly can I do it. And so those things are a tough balance when you're talking, I think, about a technical product that has an end user component, but that's kind of what you got to do. What were some of your, you, it could be one, could be many, some of your favorite campaigns that you've ran in the past that really kind of got to multi-levels and got people on the same page, some of that ABM flavor that we talk about now that really helped engage, you know, the, the kind of whole, whole buying stack there. Yeah. The, the one that comes immediately to mind was a, not a solo effort. It was actually kind of a community effort among a whole bunch of SaaS providers in an era when cloud computing and SaaS technologies were still relatively new. And while I think the benefits for ramping onto SaaS technologies were obvious, it's very quick, you can try before you buy, there's not a lot of risk or investment to get started, there was still a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt about the safety of cloud technology. You know, it's, oh my goodness, it's on servers I can't touch, what? So there was a lot of, of that FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And so what we did was we worked with a number of different SaaS providers to kind of together create a concept of what we called user-centric IT and made it somewhat of a public movement that people could join and support and upload their video statement around and so on and so forth. And the idea there was we were trying to shift the conversation among CIOs and frankly IT professionals to talk not about what technology first should we buy because it's safest and it's most feature robust, but 
if we thought about this as the technologies we buy in support of our knowledge workers, in support of the people that ultimately do the work that brings money into the company. Um, if we flipped the view entirely and thought about the user as the center of design around IT, that changes the story completely and it really lends itself to discovering the benefits of SaaS technology. And it kind of forces the IT professionals to think in a different order of importance as to how you think about the technology stack or infrastructure that runs the company. Um, and that was kind of just an eye-opening conversation that we ended up having a whole bunch of CIOs really embrace and talk about on the road in their presentations and things like that, because it was a way, it, kind of under the covers, I guess, it was a way of making the CIO a strategic visionary at a time when I think we were shifting from CIOs having been more of a cost containment infrastructure management team. And that was a big, big draw for CIOs. Like, oh my gosh, maybe we can help make CIOs the heroes here. Yeah. Uh, really envisioning the future that will make their users more productive, the business run better and in a more modern way and a more cost-effective way. I, yeah. And I think it's such a great marketing lesson. It's like, how do you make your, your customers the hero? Like we, we talk about it on the show a lot is, you know, if you're telling the story of your customers, like in the hero's journey format, they're the hero, right? You're not, you're the, you're the elixir, right? Like they're, they're Luke Skywalker and, and you're the lightsaber, not, vice versa, right? The story is not about lightsabers, you know, it's not about the tools that get the job done. Completely agree. So how do you see the role of CMO changing with the rise of technologies, with the rise of kind of all of this complexity, the, the stack of whatever, five or 6,000, you know, MarTech options and all that stuff? Well, and those elements you just rattled off are very much a part of how the roles change dramatically. You know, it is mostly driven by technology evolution. Because if I think of what we're able to do in marketing today, so think of the most personalized website experience you can imagine. The minute you land on a page, it knows who you are, what you like, what you've purchased elsewhere, where you last came from, and can personalize an experience for you not just as an individual in the consumer and retail sectors, but also in business. I mean, if we know that somebody lands on our website, say from, I don't know, pick a favorite company, Coca-Cola, that's a very different experience that they should get about whatever product it is they're investigating than if it's somebody who lands on the site from the FDA. So, you know, if you can start to personalize those experiences, then that's pretty powerful. You can actually eliminate a lot of, exploration and answer questions earlier and preemptively answer questions that haven't been asked yet. But all of that is only possible because of the technology we have today. Because electronically, we can discover where somebody comes from, what domain they visit from, what part of the world they're in, what their you know, behavioral trends are like online. There's so much we can tell about somebody online that we can serve up that experience. And we can track what they actually did on the site so that in aggregate, we can see what was most effective in moving people toward the answers they were seeking in coming to the site to begin with. And so all of that is so different from what it was when websites first emerged or even pre-websites. Right now we're talking back many, many moons ago, but 20 years ago or so, you couldn't do those things. And it, the technologies wasn't there yet. 
And so you really had to do a lot more printed brochures and in-person conferences and visits and phone calls and things like that, that just a completely different way of marketing. And so as we've been able to move more toward a technology-driven marketing universe or performance marketing that's based on tech, then you've, start, you've got to really instrument the system to be able to fine-tune and optimize and look for those patterns that improve um, the delivery of whatever message it is you're trying to get to whatever potential buyer. And so now I think, take that to what does that mean for the CMO? The CMO has to be able to wade through those 6,000 MarTech technologies and figure out what the right stack is going to look like to give that best online experience and provide all the tracking and insights that you want. And that means that marketers today are technologists and they're data junkies because they have to be. And so that is totally different skill set than it once was, where I think 25 years ago or so, a lot of marketers were much more brand centric and the way that they, you know, exercised and invested and skill honed and everything else. And now I feel like marketers, the best of them are really focused on tech, the use of technology to best deliver message to the right target market. So that's, the evolution. And that just means different skill sets, different emphases. The job definitions themselves are different than they once were. How has your view of the CMO and of marketing changed now that you're sitting in the COO role? Are you, uh, do you take it a little easier on, on the CMO or, or are you, are you harder? What, uh, has it, has it softened your disposition? What, where are you looking at it now from what angle? Yeah, that's a, that's a fun question. I actually have two things to comment on there. One is how I interact with CMOs that work for me now, um, just directly to your question. The other one is, I think it's also really shifted how I see the interaction between sales and marketing and marketing and the CIO, because those technologies, as useful as they may be, also are potential vulnerabilities and entrees into your systems. And so I feel like now the CIO has to have a very tight collaboration with marketing on what technologies are going to be part of the stack for that company uh, and frankly help the CMO to discover what those right tools might be. Um, so I think there's a tighter collaboration than there's ever been between the CIO and CMO. And then on like how I interact with marketing, I think that my background has, and I really grew up in the product marketing side of things as we talked about, I think it's made me a great partner to whomever I bring into the business. I, I'm the opposite of a micromanager. I want to hire people who are so good at their jobs that they, they're better at it than I could be. But by the same token, I need to be able to look at what they're doing in the context of the larger business objectives and be able to course correct or guide or give feedback and be a sounding board. And I think my background lets me do that in a really, really good way. So I feel like if you asked, you know, the last three or four marketing leaders who've worked for me, they would tell you, um, that I've been just a really good partner and sounding board and kind of idea person to help maybe take our ideas and expand them even further. I hope that's what they'd say anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. Why were you so excited about the opportunity at, at HelloSign and, and what, what kind of cool stuff are, are you all working on now? Um, well, what got me excited is a few things. One was definitely the market opportunity. I've, I look like I'm a big company girl on paper, but I'm actually not. I, I joined Oracle in the late 80s when it was one building on a hill in Belmont. You know, I joined Documentum when we were like 
50 people. I joined Box when we were about 100 people. I joined HelloSign at about 40. I, I love joining companies where we're in this kind of smaller, ready to scale state and then come and be part of that scaling motion that gets us to IPO and or acquisition or whatever. So certainly this was the sweet spot for me. Uh, by the time I got to HelloSign, it was just perfect size right on the right trajectory. Um, the role was super appealing, not surprisingly, given what we've talked about. I'd been a GM twice, a CMO twice. I was really looking for the next challenge and the idea of looking across all the go-to-market functions and doing kind of the corporate planning growth and scale part was really attractive to me. The third thing was largely the partnership with the founders. Uh, Joseph Walla and Neil O'Mara were looking for, as they called it, kind of a third founder. They, they really wanted a partner for the three of us to run the business together and all of us to have complementary but different skills. And, you know, I brought the go-to-market expertise and scale expertise, and they've got all the product vision and technical excellence, and the three of us just work beautifully together. And that's just been a joy. But I'm also very driven by competitive motion, and I love being the underdog. Um, when I believe that we've got the right product and the opportunity and we can totally win, I love being part of that. And so HelloSign, you know, being a, a not first entrant into the e-signature market with a longstanding kind of, you know, forefather of the market in place, but knowing that we could do it in a better, more cost-effective delightful way was super exciting. So you kind of throw all those things together. And it was sort of a magical formula. It was, there was no way it wasn't going to be a yes. <laughs> so you also asked about, you know, what exciting things we're working on. And this was also part of the draw to join the company. I, not only did I see this opportunity, this underdog opportunity around HelloSign in the e-signature market, but we also had this really interesting idea at the time that's since become a product called HelloWorks, which is about document workflow and getting PDFs, which are really awful on mobile devices, completely out of the workflow occasion. Uh, so awful. So awful, right? Gosh, so awful. You're a Every new day. employee onboarding and you have to fill out your stupid W-9 forms and direct deposit forms and all you have is your mobile phone. It's, sorry, but you're going to be really unhappy. And so we invented HelloWorks to kind of take all that pain out and make the mobile experience awesome. And not just for e-signature, but for any sort of complex document data gathering and processing type of workflows. So anyway, that, that germ of an idea was also exciting. And we just introduced the end user component of HelloWorks just about six months ago. So still really new and exciting. And we're still building that out and seeing some really fun things happen. And then another big fun thing happened, which is we decided to uh, join forces with Dropbox. So they acquired us back in February, just a couple months ago. And we're really excited about that too. And I think the really motivating thing there is that our mission at HelloSign has been to make frictionless agreements available to every individual and every business around the world. There's no way we could do it faster than by being part of Dropbox. They're the world's largest repository of documents and they've got an installed base of you know, half a billion registered users and 12 and a half million paying customers, I think at last count or something close to that. So you start to think about, wow, how could we bring our vision to the market as quickly as possible? And it's really with the backing credibility and access to customers around the world that Dropbox brings. So it was a beautiful marriage. Yeah, that's really exciting. I think a lot of times there's that kind of trepidation of like, 
what what happens uh, and especially you've known uh, a ton of CIOs who usually are, are the ones who have to help you know manage that conversation you know and that integration and it sounds like you know it's a perfect home for a perfect partnership of two folks that are aligned on the same mission yeah for sure it's exciting I, I've been through I think 17 acquisitions twice acquired the rest being the acquirer and I've never seen one go this smoothly. And I think a lot of that is our cultures were very, very, very similar. Similar go-to-market motion to similar focus on customer satisfaction and success. So a lot of really, really good points of alignment that weren't just technological. Um, I think those were a lot of the reasons that it's gone so well so far. Last question before we get into the lightning round. You are an advisor to a ton of startups. Number one, how do you have the time? And number two, is there any like insights that you get from those folks that really help with, you know, seeing innovation, seeing ideas from the field, uh, getting to know what's going on or just, you know, kind of keeping up with the, the technological Joneses as it were? Oh, that, that is the primary reason to do it other than, you know, giving back. Like I, I love sharing lessons I've learned and helping others maybe avoid a mistake I've made before, but it is very much a mutual learning kind of thing. I, I get to stay abreast of emerging technology trends and meeting the great leaders that are emerging and growing companies. They're going to be ahead of me on stuff. So it's very helpful to me as much as it is for them to have access to my expertise. So I look at it as a win-win. And I don't know, I make the time. It's, it's one of those things where I feel like I got so much help along the way. How can I not give back if I'm, in, if I'm at a point where I can help? It just seems like the right thing to do and it's fun. Yeah, agreed. Um, oh, and you asked, are there insights there that beyond just kind of keeping abreast of technology, there are some really interesting, common, I don't know if I call them mistakes or like leanings, predispositions maybe that are kind of shocking and really can cause failure. And so there, there are a couple common ones that really stand out to me. I think, especially when you have a technical founder, which is what's so common in Silicon Valley, of course, the build it and they will come philosophy is much more prevalent than you might imagine. Oh yeah. You're not solving an actual problem. Whether people know they have that problem or not is another topic of conversation perhaps. But if you just build it for technology's sake and don't really have a target market target customer in mind, then you're going to have to grind it out trying to find your target customer and, and hope that you can get them on board. And I think just the build it and they will come thing is just more prevalent than it should be. And that's one thing that I really advise a lot around. The other thing I found again, largely with technical founders is some of them are loath to recognize what they don't know or are unwilling to admit what they don't know. And I think in the best possible scenario, a really great leader and founder is looking for people to fill the gaps. Not unlike this, what I described with the founders here at Hello Sun and myself, where they were looking for somebody that literally didn't have, or, or sorry, that literally had the experience they didn't. It, it is surprising. There are some people that I think have enough hubris. They just, I don't know, don't think they have any shortcomings, I guess, or just are loath to recognize them. And I, I think that's one of the most important things to help a company is to recognize leader has to recognize what they're not great at and then go hire the best of the best that do those things well and form a great partnership so that they collaboratively become much greater than the sum of the parts. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that there's so much, and and I think it's just any product centric founder. Yeah, I, th- I think it's really not. It's more of a human condition than something that's unique to the valley. It just happens to be technologists here. But you know, if you create, I mean, you see all the people on Shark Tank or whatever it is, like people who think that the thing that they created is just people will just mass adopt. You know, it's the same thing with media. We talk about the three D's of podcasting: distribution, distribution, and distribution. <laughs> um, right? Like it is the one thing that every single startup absolutely needs in some form or fashion, whether it's, you know, a, a large amount or a little amount, uh, but you always need it. And it's always the thing that uh, is, is, is hard to find when your head is buried in a computer building product all day. Yeah, totally. Oh, and there's one other thing I've seen a lot too in those conversations, which is uh, that I counsel a lot around, which is making sure that you are thoughtful about the timing um, for taking money and that you, if you are going to raise money, but you make sure you take money from the right people because those are going to be the people that are in the trenches with you and have your back as well as challenge you and check you on the things you're doing. But I, I just feel like there's some companies who are willing to take money from anybody, which just isn't a recipe for success. It doesn't mean you're bound to fail, but you're not as well set up for success, I think, versus being choosy about the kind of investors you want that have the great network, the right experience the insights that are going to help you and are going to be great partners in times of trouble and not taking money at the wrong time. You know, you don't want to wait until you're on your last legs with 60 days of runway left to take money. You can't negotiate well. 60 days. If, if you're, advi- if, if you're months, advising, months, I mean, scary stuff here, but it happens. I, I'm trying, I'm talking seven days. I mean, the 60 days, I'm like, that's smooth sailing. You're not even breaking a sweat if you have 60 days of runway. I was talking to a founder the other day who raised $17 million and was like literally out of money the next day. I mean, it was like, and you're talking a massive round, right? Uh, like an A round, you know, from pretty big time VCs. But uh, yeah, that stuff happens. But, but, it, but, and the reason why I say that is like, it is important to know the ecosystem that you're swimming in, regardless of whether or not you're in Silicon Valley or if you're, you know, we have listeners in over 130 countries. So, you know, like wherever it is that you're swimming, you have to know the kind of societal norms and all those things. And if you're in startup world, it's really important to know the desperation levels of some of the founders and like the type of stuff that they're dealing with. You know, like they say, you want three founders because one person can sell the product, one person can make the product and the other one can fundraise. You know, <laughs> you just think about like that idea is so, I was like, wow, a third of your company goes to doing something that's not making or selling the product. So I think it's just important for marketers to know that, especially when you're working with startups, that there's a lot of opportunities to, to do a lot of cool stuff with them because your money is really important. Yeah, Exactly. Um, okay, so let's get into some lightning around questions. These questions are fast and easy. They're fun, silly, fast and easy, just like marketing automation with Pardot. You can go to pardot.com slash podcast to learn more about B2B marketing with the world's number one CRM. We love Pardot and we love fast and easy lightning round questions. Whitney, are you ready? All right, let's go, Ian. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? I think the app I have the most fun with is actually Uber Eats because it's about food. What's your favorite thing to order? Oh, probably Indian food. Any good restaurants uh, in, in the Valley that you love? 
oh, there are so many. You're talking to a real foodie here. So this could be a whole nother podcast, Ian. We'll bring you back. You'll be our uh, our Uber Eats correspondent. I think they might have to 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 pay for the ad reads, but uh, they. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think my favorite Indian restaurant in San Francisco is Dosa. Oh, I've been to Dosa. Dosa is great. What about your favorite vacation spot? Probably the Caribbean. Favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? I really enjoy the podcast. How I built this. What are you most excited for the future of marketing? Personalization. What is your best advice for a first-time CMO? Don't be cocky. Ask a Ooh. lot of questions. Don't think you understand everything and seek mentorship from people who've been there before you. What do you do for fun? Cook. What's your favorite thing to cook? Oh, I like cooking everything. I write a food blog too. So it's ultimately when I'm done with tech someday, way far in the future, I want my own internet cooking show. Oh, so, hey, you're talking to a guy who runs a media company here. So we can make that happen. You let me know. Yeah, we'll talk after this because uh, we, so our, our audio engineer, Jonah, who's listening to us right now in the ether, is like the biggest cook foodie ever. And he's absolutely hilarious. And uh, so he was our, he's like our team chef. So when we go on like our, when we went on our offsite, uh, he cooked like all the meals. It was brilliant. So maybe you and Jonah can team, team up together. Whitney and Jonah cook the world or something. I love it. I'm in. Jonah, we'll talk. <laughs> Final question. What question do you never get asked that I did not ask you today? that you wish you were asked more often? Funny, if we hadn't already talked about the uh, someday I want my own cooking show, it would be like, what do you want to do after tech? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. We burnt that one. Yeah, we did break that one. Well, it's not, are you thinking business or personal? Or either? Either one. It's funny, most people don't ask much about time outside work. I mean, you said, what do you do to have fun? And I said, cook. But but like, where, where do you love to travel in California? What are some of the favorite spots in California? Because I think we have such an incredibly rich state to take advantage of. We have beach, wine country, ski mountain, hiking, all within a very, very close radius. And um, I am a fanatic for Lake Tahoe. I just love it up there. I, I do as well. I totally love it. And I loved our conversation today. Winnie, this was absolutely great. We're so happy to have had you share some lessons. And we're excited to see, uh, you know, onward and upwards for, for HelloSign and, and Dropbox and, uh, and what's next for you. Well, Ian, thank you so much. I had a really great time chatting with you and look forward to talking more in the future. Talk soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast or click on the link in our show notes.
you have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.